Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mike Graham speaking common sense unto the nation on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. The storms have passed, ladies and gentlemen. The rain has stopped and the wind isn't blowing anymore. That was some weekend storm, wasn't it? Boris Johnson, by the way, still Prime Minister, apparently. Uh, According to those who know, he's replaced his team inside Downing Street, which is a bit like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, I think. And his wife, Carrie, is definitely not to blame for anything, ever. Couldn't be, could she? Despite being lambasted by Daily Mail columnist Sarah Vine and Sunday Times writer Camilla Long, it is now considered sexist, apparently, to blame her for any of his problems. That's according to Piers Morgan, anyway. I think Piers has rather lost the plot on this one. It's not sexist to criticise a woman who happens to be married to the Prime Minister. Lord Ashcroft has put a book out, uh, which is rather interesting. It's called First Lady. It's being described by people who are friends of Carrie's as a hatchet job. It's being described as a hit job. It's being described as a sexist, misogynistic piece of literature. Well, I'm sorry to tell you that is not true because Carrie Johnson, I can tell you with absolute and utter surety, is the reason for Boris Johnson's problems. The wallpaper. I mean, which man in his right mind wants to redecorate his own house? Nobody does. Women want to do that, okay? Which man in his right mind would care about whether or not he had some cake for his birthday? He doesn't care. She does. Who would worry about having wine and cheese in the garden? And who would attend a work event if she wasn't working? Carrie Johnson, ladies and gentlemen. And who would care about saving the planet? Boris Johnson goes around creating more children than China. And yet, here he is, supposedly wanting to save the planet by organising a conference in Glasgow, which everybody can fly into and promise to get to net zero. Who's to blame for that? Mrs. Johnson, I think you'll find. 0344 499 1000 is the number. We'll take your view on it, of course, as well. Piers Morgan uh, can ring in if he wants to. Uh, I know he's going to be working for us soon, but he might have a few spare hours right now. So give us a call, mate, and let us know what you think. 0344 499 1000. We'll be asking Belinda DeLucy, former Brexit Party MEP, whether women are treated differently in the world of politics. She had to suffer the slings and arrows of Brussels when she was in the Brexit Party, and she can stand up for herself, as most women can. No reason why you can't criticise them just because they're women. I think that's sexist in itself, isn't it? Also, Brendan Chilton's here as well to tell us what he thinks is going to happen with the new deck chairs on the Titanic. Gitu Harry's gone back in, apparently, to Downing Street, and I can tell you a few secrets about him if I feel like it. 0344 499 1000. Peter Hitchens is here as well saying, 
this will be looked back upon as a golden age of politics. <laughs> no, he hasn't gone mad. He's just saying it could be a lot worse uh, with Comrade Starmer in charge, who is, of course, a Marxist like they all are. Uh, we don't want to get him in either. Uh, and, of course, we've got Angela Levin talking about Queen Camilla. I think congratulations are in order. I'll be more than happy to doff my cap to Queen Camilla. I don't care what anybody says about whether she stole Prince Charles away from Princess Diana, uh, the Princess of Wales. I mean, that's all in the past. I wonder if Harry's got anything to say about it. Uh, we'll talk a lot about parking charges. We've won a little victory there. We'll also talk about Ben and Jerry's entering the war between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, and of course, we will talk much, much more to you the people of the Independent Republic of Mike Webb. So do call us. 0344-499-1000 is the number. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk to Brendan Chilton and see what he makes of it all. Brendan, how nice to see you. Very good morning to you. Good morning to you, Mike. First Monday in February. It feels like a new beginning, but we've had a lot of those. <laughs> um, <laughs> what do you make of it all? Uh, we've got the weekend has come and gone. Boris Johnson still clings on as Prime Minister. I think he genuinely believes that the longer he keeps himself in there, the harder it will be to get him out. But Mike, the uh, the rearranging of the deck chairs, as you so put it, I think is really not going to make a blind bit of difference <laughs> to the, the public perception of the government. No, I mean, and, and I don't just say this because it's a, a Conservative Prime Minister. Gordon Brown tried it. David Cameron tried it. Tony Blair tried it. When a Prime Minister uh, is unfortunately, you know, on the rocks and mired in scandal, you, you can move people around as much as you like. But once the public have made up their mind about you, you, you really are done for in a sense. Now, I think actually the biggest issue facing the government this year is going to be how they respond, as we've discussed before, uh, to this rising cost of living crisis in the country. Um, and I think that will really depend on whether or not this government can survive or not. Uh, because I don't know about you, Mike, but I, I had to fill up at the pump yesterday morning and I noticed a stark yeah. increase in well, no, I mean, I, 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 was, I was talking about this just last week because I did that very same thing, I think, the weekend before and was staggered to see that, well, I've got quite a small petrol tank, uh, diesel tank, I should say, and it used to be about 55 quid. It's now 75, which is quite a big increase. Yeah, well, I'm in a similar position. Mine was usually about 45 quid. I'm now up to about 65 quid mm. to fill up the tank. And this is only going to get worse. So, you know, you can appoint new officials in number 10 and you can maybe even have a cabinet reshuffle. But unless people uh, start seeing an increase in their living standards, their take-home pay and their quality of life, the government will be in trouble. Uh, and this issue is not going away. It's going to be with us all year uh, because, of course, it, it could get far worse with the situation in Ukraine. Uh, but at the moment, I, I don't really see a government focused on that. It, as you said, it's all about rearranging the deck chairs and not dealing with the day-to-day -day problems that people are facing. No, quite. And, I mean, as we found out over the weekend, not only are we continually going to be paying the a surcharge for green companies to be able to make even more money from us, um, the, the amount of money Rishi Sunak has offered us is pitiful and hopeless and isn't going to make any difference whatsoever. And, my, and by, by the way, it's not coming till October, by which time there'll have been two price hikes in the energy costs. We also find... <laughs> that not only are we paying VAT, we're also now subsidising the companies that went bust to the tune of some millions and millions of pounds. It's unbelievable. It is extraordinary. And, of course, the offer from uh, the Chancellor is essentially a loan. 
uh, it's got to be paid back at some point. Uh, I think we've discussed before, Mike, what we need to do uh, to try and help people through this crisis. I think the first thing is to actually start using our newfound freedoms now we're outside the European Union uh, and slash VAT on fuel. Secondly, we need to end the subsidies uh, to the uh, green energy companies. If they can't compete on a level playing field with uh, traditional sources, then sorry, you go out of business. Mm. You know, this is a market op- a system in which we live and you shouldn't be getting subsidised. And then thirdly and finally, this would not be an immediate solution, but one that's more long term. We need to use the natural resources we've got in and around this country. Why aren't we fracking? Why aren't we being more active in uh, looking for new oil fields in the North Sea, exploring possibly the use of green coal and tidal? Uh, If we start doing these things, we become industry sufficient and less reliant on foreign powers like, you know, Russia and other despotic countries in the Middle East Mm. and bring down people's bills. Well, exactly right. And the fact is, as well, we've got a sort of ludicrous situation where we've got the head of Ofgem, right, who doesn't seem to give a stuff about the actual customers of these companies, but cares more about the companies themselves, right? He also apparently uh, is driven by a green agenda. He's a former head of the Department for Climate Change. Surprise, surprise, right? And not only that, you've got the Bank of England uh, boss telling people not to ask for a pay rise. He's on 575 grand a year, by the way. And you've also got the boss of Tesco telling people not to buy food. You know, we've entered some kind of Alice in Wonderland sort of through the looking glass world, haven't we? Well, we completely lost the pot, right, really. (laughs) (laughs) The country really is starting to go to the wall. Um, But this is just a demonstration of the problems, the general problem in this country. You've got an elite in this country that are extremely wealthy, extremely comfortable, largely London-centric, but also in the southeast, that are wholly committed to a whole set of policies and agendas which actually the majority of the British people either are not interested in, don't support or don't fully understand or totally disagree with. Mm. One of those is this whole green agenda. Um, This notion that, oh, everyone's got to have solar panels, everyone's got to have an electric car, Uh, petrol and diesel are bad. If you don't recycle, you're bad. You know, this whole agenda, which is expensive. You know, if you try and insulate your home, I think we discussed this last year when you had all those insulate Britain people coming on. You know, they didn't even insulate their homes because it was going to cost them around and 15 or 20,000 I see that I see they're all okay preparing to pivot now to the stop oil campaign or something so they're all going to be now reinventing themselves they're going to get some new banners apparently but the the the, the song remains the same uh, that apparently we shouldn't be using oil at all well, well, I think you and I should dress up as oil barrels and march down Whitehall in opposition to them. I'm round enough as it yeah. is. So I, that, you know, I was going to say, there's not, not much makeup required for both of us in that one. <laughs> but I mean, this is the thing. I mean, we're now running a, a, a country which basically really doesn't work at anything, right? Nothing really works properly. The, uh, the, the, the energy crisis means that prices are going through the roof for absolutely everything. The one thing the Tesco guy is right about is that food prices are going to go up because inevitably everything is going to go up because everybody's paying more money to move everything around. Uh, entirely right, Mike. We are, as a country, our biggest problems are we are overmanned, we are overregulated, we are overtaxed, and we don't make enough here in this country to sell to the rest of the world. Mm. And no politician at the moment has got a serious enough agenda that deals with those problems. And until we do, we're going to continue to see this cost of living crisis. We're going to continue to see rising prices in the shops and our share of world trade fall. We need a policy that revives manufacturing. We need to scrap all those EU regulations that are left over from our days in the European Union. The government should not be raising taxes at the moment. It should be cutting them. And we should be using this huge digital 
uh, experience that we've had over the past few years to look at how we can radically reform the public sector. If we do that, Britain will boom. Yeah. Well, we've heard over the course of the last few days several, uh, what I would not call breaking news stories, but certainly, you know, insights into how things are working. Apparently, um, the National Health Service is not only in crisis, but is absolutely and utterly desperately abandoned by the people that work in it. Most of the people that work on the sort of back office jobs are not in their offices at all. I think only one in four have actually come back to work. You know, when you talk about the NHS and the waiting lists, apparently today we here that Rishi Sunak is putting a kibosh on Boris Johnson's plans to unveil a new a new kind of plan to make everything better because he wants to see proper targets he doesn't want to see money thrown into a black hole which of course is what's going to happen after April when they start taxing us on national insurance to the tune of an extra 1.25 percent you know so I mean all sorts of problems in this country exist and have existed now for such a long time I'm not even sure they can be fixed I think they can be fixed. I think it just requires a politician who's prepared not to sit there looking at opinion polls and saying, oh, I'm worried about what the public think on this. I'm worried about what the public think on that. We've had prime ministers in the past in this country, some Labour, some Conservative, that have radically transformed this country precisely because they've been politicians with conviction Mm. and they've gone in there and done the job that's necessary. And I put both Blair and Thatcher in those categories. They drove their agenda forward. Whether you agreed with them or not, they got on with it. And at the moment, unfortunately, we've got a political class that I think is the weakest and most Mm. useless political class we've had in generations. Um, And frankly, the country, it's not the British people that uh, aren't up to the job, it's our politicians that aren't up to the job. If we get someone or a party or collection of politicians that can deal with those issues we've discussed, the fact we're overmanned, overregulated, overtaxed and don't make enough. Mm. And frankly, we've got to drag, as you said, our public services into the 21st century. There was a report just before Christmas where it said, I think something like 30% of NH trusts are still largely using paper to yeah, keep yeah. Uh, records of patients. This is bizarre. You know, <laughs> Why aren't we moving forward quickly? Because mm. we've been overtaken by so many countries in the world on so many things. It wasn't that long ago that Britain was top dog. Mm. And if we got our act together, we could be top dog again. Absolutely right. And listen, I'm not one of those people that blames everything uh, on recent uh, events. You know, we've been probably neglectful of a lot of the public services. I think George Osborne was perhaps one of the worst chancellors this country ever saw uh, and was completely and utterly idiotic in some of the things that he did, including, of course, the famous pasty tax, which lasted about two and a half nanoseconds before he realised it couldn't be imposed and reversed it again, even before he'd sat down uh, in the house, you know. But we, so we, we've sort of, we've taken, our, as the people of this country, I think we've taken our eye off the ball. You know, we're run by council officials who don't seem to know their heads from their backsides. We're run by politicians. I mean, who's Steve Barclay? Everybody keeps saying, oh, he's a very safe pair of hands, this guy. Nobody's ever heard of him. You know, the idea that you walk around any town in this country and say, have you ever heard of Steve Barclay? I guarantee you, no one would say yes well i I had to double check and he was this morning (laughs) (laughs) yeah who is he can you help me i mean what's he what's he famous for i think he was may's brexit secretary for a bit but you know great well excellent (laughs) (laughs) um but it, I think you're right. You know, it's when a government has to start, you know, announcing major changes to its back office team, uh, you know, it's in trouble. Yes. Um, and I think it's it's unfortunate, really, whether it's a conservative government or a Labour government, when they get into trouble like this, what they need to do, as I say, is get back to what matters. And if the government were to stop 
faffing around over whether or not Boris survives or doesn't. You know, if he's going to go, go. If exactly. Not, Just put, I mean, put everybody out there, misery, for heaven's sake. You know, I mean, you know my views on it. I was calling for yeah. him to go back in November. And I think we would have been a lot better off if he had done. And I don't buy any of these kind of, you know, crazy Brexit theories that if he goes, then we'll all be ending up back in the European Union. That's not happening uh, at all. But stay where you are, Brendan, because I want to talk to you about the other big issue, which people, I think, are very, very annoyed about. And that is the migrant problem, the amount of money we're wasting and spending, the numbers of people still coming, and still we hear those bleating words from Pretty Patel and Boris Johnson. We're fixing it. I was listening to somebody this morning on Julie Hartley Brewer's uh, show, some uh, politician, some MP, Tory party guy, saying, oh, well, we're going to crack down on it because we've got a new bill coming. No, you're not. Don't tell lies and don't keep telling us that it's raining while you're doing something down our back. Quite frankly, I'm not having it. This is Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. We've been talking to Brendan Chilton about many things, including the green budget, the green agenda, the green economy, the green industry, if you like. Uh, problem uh, with that, of course, is that it's not really working terribly well. Uh, but Boris Johnson uh, is absolutely convinced that it's the right thing to do. According to the Daily Telegraph today, though, energy ratings for homes are to be overhauled by the government amid fears that under the current system, installing a heat pump could cut the value of your property. Well, that's even better news, isn't it? Great. So I put a heat pump in because I wanted to save the planet. Uh, I didn't care that they were running around in China building a new coal-fired power station literally every five and a half nanoseconds. But actually, it turns out that my house is now worth less money. And it's colder. How about this from Gemma? My electric bill for November, December was 540 quid. I got an eco grant to have my storage heaters upgraded a few years ago, so I agreed to it. Now I'm paying the price. The hot air is escaping through the windows and doors. Happy 2022. Brendan, I mean, this is a huge problem for so many people. And if you did fall for the green uh, nonsense and actually install uh, one of these um, uh, heat pumps, you will be suffering not only through the cold, but also through the cost of living because your house is going to be worth less money. Well, I imagine, Mike, as well, they're also rather expensive. Uh, to install, uh, as is the case with much of these new green installations that the government wants us to have in all of our homes. Mm. It's all very well having a, a wonderful policy idea, if you think it's wonderful, but also, you know, when the cost comes and people can't afford it, they're then penalised further. Frankly, I think this whole green agenda, uh, there's no real critical debate on it. The whole focus is on some sort of cataclysmic uh, outcome if we don't change our lives, namely, you know, that we're all going to be living underwater. Yeah. Uh, Everything's going to be awful. Actually, I well, I mean, to be I've got news for them. It's already pretty bad, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Things can't get much worse, can they? <laughs> but, you know, um, I think we need to be looking at adaptation uh, and all those things we discussed earlier, you know, making sure we make the green companies competitive uh, so people can keep more of their own money. Uh, if we're going to be planting more trees, I think we should be certainly doing that to help the mm. environment, not taking these ridiculous measures where we're taxing people to high heaven, making their homes uh, less profitable for them and essentially decimating people's living standards. Exactly. Um, but there's no debate in this country around it. And if you do try to debate it, oh boy, do the Twitter mob pile in on you. I mean, I was listening to Roger Gale over the weekend on Richard Tice's show, uh, and even he was banging on about saving the planet. And I thought, blimey, if Roger Gale's even been infected by it. But I've worked out why they are all so keen to bang the drum, because uh, as The Sun revealed earlier in the uh, year, MPs are charging the taxpayer up to £3,500 for their second home energy costs. It's all right for them, isn't it? 
Again, Mike, it comes back to this, you know, two countries. We've we've essentially got two countries, the haves and the have-nots. The haves, you know, those living in nice, fine houses with very good incomes that are supporting all these policies. And then the vast majority of the rest of the people that are living their day-to-day lives, struggling to make ends meet and don't necessarily agree with what's being imposed on them. I know um, the government likes to say, well, in 2019... Uh, people voted for their net zero because it was in our manifesto. What a load of tosh. Uh, They voted to get Brexit done. And at the time, uh, the only party that was really saying they would get Brexit done and could get it done was the Conservatives. The whole green agenda, uh, and I, I participated in that election, I don't recall uh, the green agenda featuring featuring very heavily at all. Mm, exactly right. Let's talk finally about the migrant problem, uh, Brendan, because I'm sick to death of hearing politicians saying, oh, this new bill's coming soon and we'll be all right then. Well, we won't be all right then. Everybody knows the bill will be about as useless as every other idea Priti Patel has ever had to stop the migrants from coming. You know, why is it that they, they're finding it so ridiculously hard to stop people coming here? And why is it that we're paying now £5 million per day to house them? Well, Mike, again, this is another thing we've discussed so many times. And last year, I think we had a total of around 27,000 people uh, crossing the channel over the course of the year. As you can see, it's mid-January. The sun is shining through my window here. I anticipate that number will reach 30,000, if not more, this year. And frankly... Well, it will probably reach 30,000 by Easter, Brendan, to be honest. Six times times the number came in January this year than came last year. So if you factor that into the whole actual 12-month period, you're going to end up with 130, 140,000. And there's no reason for this to be happening. Now, I feel sorry in some respects for these people. They're being trafficked by drug criminal gangsters. Uh, And why can't the government arrest them? If you remember last year, I think it was just before Christmas, we had that terrible incident where the boat sank and around 30 people died in the English Channel. The very next day, uh, the French and British intelligence are identified several sort of traffickers uh, based in the Calais area, and they were arrested. If they know these people exist, why are they still walking the streets in France and in Britain? Um, The government have got to get a grip on this. Frankly, Priti Patel is, well, she's just utterly useless, another one of this political class that hasn't got a clue. We need to be turning the boats back. We need to, part of the problem in Calais is we've essentially fortified Calais and the traffickers have just moved further down the coast. So there's going to have to be some sort of Anglo-French investment along the French coast to stop people using the various coves and bays. It's going to cost money, but it's got to be done because it's not fair on the British taxpayer. It's not fair on the victims that are being trafficked across the channel. And it's not fair that every day it's there are people stuck on the immigration and asylum system legitimately trying to get into this country. And those people crossing the channel are getting in illegally. Yeah. I mean, surely the point here, Brendan, if we're going to be honest about everything that is happening, is that the European Union absolutely kiboshed every single country in Europe by saying to the immigration uh, people, just don't worry, come to, come to Europe, come and live here. If you don't like it in Libya, if you don't like it in Afghanistan, if you don't like it in Iran, come here. We'll give you a nice warm sanctuary. Uh, we're often told that France, Germany, um, you know, Belgium, all other countries in Europe take more refugees than we do. And it has ruined, and I'm afraid, I'm quite happy to say this, it has ruined the entire uh, continent of Europe because there are now places in Europe uh, which have got these camps where people live because they think that they can either stay there or they can get to Britain where they can have a better life. Something has got to be done on a much grander scale than us waiting at the wrong end of the pipe to try and stop something coming out of the pipe which has been running through it uh, for quite a long time. 
I remember a few years ago uh, when uh, Chancellor Merkel opened the borders and said, let them come. And you had those columns of people uh, coming across Europe and all being applauded at Munich train station and other train stations. Immigration is needed to a degree. You've got to have some to help support these domestic uh, population in the economy. However, it's got to be done gradually and carefully because you cannot plan your public services if you don't know how many people are coming. You cannot ensure that there's good, strong, cohesive communities if too many people arrive at one time. It's got to be a gradual process. And what we're seeing at the moment, not just in this country, but across the whole of the European Union, are unsustainable levels of migration and asylum. Yeah. And frankly, that's why you're seeing across Europe many extreme parties rising in the polls uh if you don't deal with this in a sensible way you get very uh, you know sort well of you difficult. will but also i'm sick yes. to death of hearing all these lefties going oh but it's our duty to house these people no it's not it's not our duty to house them it's not our duty to import them it's not our duty to help them out i'm sorry i might as well say that as well because at the end of the day there is a limit to what we can do in this country. There are people sleeping on the streets uh, who were born and raised here. There are people who have no money to heat their own homes. Meanwhile, we're paying five million a day for thousands of people to stay in hotels. It's ridiculous, isn't it? That, 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 is, that is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, and those costs this year, if, if, if we get more people arriving across the channel, those costs are only going to go up at a time mm. uh, when, as we've discussed before, the, the living standards in this country are falling and people are really facing difficulties in their weekly budgets. Yeah. Uh, this issue has got to be dealt with. The government promised in 2019 it would take back control of the borders. Well, it's completely lost control uh, of the borders in this country. Um, you're absolutely right to say that, you know, we cannot, as you say, plan for public services, build the homes we need, everything else in running a country, if you haven't got control of your borders and the numbers of people coming in uh, into your country, mm. whether that's by asylum, by legal immigration, illegal immigration, whatever it is. And until the government gets to grips of this, the public are going to get very angry. Yeah. Uh, the second most important issue at the moment in most opinion polls, immigration and illegal immigration, and if the government, as I say, don't deal with this, it's going to continue to come that hot potato that neither party wants to deal with. And the solutions are not difficult, as we've discussed so many times. Mm. Send the boats back, reinforce the borders, extra patrol staff. Those that have arrived here illegally, send them home. Uh, it is not difficult. No. Uh, and we just need, as we've said, a Home Secretary and a political class with, frankly, the balls <laughs> to deal with it. Sorry yes. for swearing on Not show. at all. <laughs> Listen, I can't think of a better word to use. Brendan, thank you very much indeed. CEO of the Independent Business Network, Brendan Chilton, talking a great deal of common sense there. Listen, it is not racist to say that we don't want illegal immigrants to come to this country. It is not racist to say that illegal immigration uh, has ruined large portions of the European continent. And it is certainly not racist to say that enough is enough. We can't afford it. The end. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk to Angela Levin. Front page of the Daily Mail. The Queen gave Camilla Plan her blessing years ago. Um, a lot of people happy to see Camilla finally being sort of confirmed as the Queen when Charles finally does become King. Angela, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you very much indeed. I mean, are you one of those who will celebrate the crowning of Queen Camilla? Absolutely, 125%. Yes. Well done. Well, I think she's been much maligned. You know, time has come and gone. There are still some people out there who think that she was, sort of, you know, uh, the fallen woman and should never be become queen. What was the option? What, what else could she have been under the new, sort of, if, if Charles well, was to become king? What they wanted was that she was called princess consort. Yes. Which was very demeaning because it's actually... 
um, against everything because she's if she's married to a king, then she's automatically queen. You can't then sort of call her something else. But this was brought out by um, a long time ago in 2005 when she married Prince Charles and people were very worried about what the public would do. So they decided to offer this, um, which is a very poor offering really, and, and to see how she got on within the royal family. Um, they were punishing her for having an affair with Prince Charles um, 30 or so years ago. Yes. I mean, life has changed. Um, well, you might as well have said, actually, if you were to look at it in a slightly different way, that he was in love with Camilla long before he married Princess Diana, wasn't he? So uh, he you might, you might say, you might say at the risk of turning off lots of Diana fans, you know, maybe she was the interloper. Well, I think actually what you have to tell off is the grandmothers of Prince Charles, Queen Mother, uh, the, Elizabeth the Queen Mother, and uh, Lady Formwood, who was um, Diana's grandmother. Mm. And they hatched the plot of getting Charles to marry Diana. They desperately wanted him to get married to produce an heir. Mm. And they thought, here's a nice innocent virgin who will um, understands the aristocratic way that we live and loves the royal family. And uh, they would make a, a, not a suitable couple, they would make the, the couple that would work out somehow. Yeah. And of course they had nothing in common and it was um, a very difficult marriage. So um, that's who I think we should blame. Yes, quite. But it I was mean, an arranged marriage, and and it sometimes come off, but a lot of the time they absolutely don't. And also, a very interesting period of time for it to be going on, wasn't it? Because it really did mark the change in public attitudes to the royal family, and it also was the media age for the royal family. So it wasn't really like it had ever been before, in as much as you know the window had now been opened, the light was now shining on the magic, as they used to call it, and so it was never going to stand up to scrutiny that marriage, was it? No, never. And of course, um, Diana, wonderful as she was and marvellous at actually doing all the patronages that she had and dealing with people, um, she was a damaged person. She had a very dysfunctional home life and she was very damaged and all the eating disorders she had were as a result of that. Yes. Poor thing. I mean, it was a great pity. Well, it really was, yeah. And she became a much more substantial individual, I thought, much after she got divorced. I mean, shortly before she died, I think Princess Diana had kind of found her metier. She'd found her place in the world, hadn't she? And she was a really valuable part of that. Well, I think she did at one level, but I don't think she did at another, where she was so yearning to have people to love her that she... Um, I think that was a sort of pain for her, really. Um, she just never felt she had enough love, and um, apart from the children. Uh, yes, grown. I feel a bit like that myself, Angela, sometimes, but, you know, I just sort of have to struggle on. You know, what oh, you do? need to find someone to hold you tight. <laughs> Steady. That's a bit early for that sort of talk. Now, tell us about um, Camilla's role as queen when she does become queen. Um, will she be involved in any sort of state sort of act, yes. as it were? She will, at the coronation, she will be crowned at the same time as Prince Charles with a crown that was belonging to the mother-in-law, um, uh, uh, with the Conynor diamond, which is actually one of the largest diamonds ever. Yes, it's, I've seen it. It's in the Tower of London, I think, isn't it? Uh, yes, that's right. Very, very carefully guarded. So she will have that. I think she won't change much as a person. All the people I've been spoken to, and that's loads to do her biography, have said that the most astonishing thing is that, that she hasn't changed. She hasn't let 
being um, a wife of the Prince Charles, go to her head. She doesn't try and make herself to be superior from everyone. She is just as witty, just as caring. And I don't suppose that she will change again. I think her role is, and she says this lots of times, that is to support Prince Charles. She accepts him for who he is, and she really genuinely loves him. And that is what she wants to do. So you see her when they're together, walking slightly behind him, uh, never trying to rush to the person who's there and shake their hands, um, really to be there for him. And all the tri tribulations with Prince um, Harry, have, she's been very, very strongly supportive of him yeah. and helped him get through that. However, when she is out on her, doing her own patronages, she is very determined, very strong, and she's um, opened up for the royal family things that there was taboo before, like rape um, and um, violence to women. And she's really made a huge impact on that and her belief in um, people reading. So she's she's made an awful lot about that. And then old people who are alone. So she, when she's on doing her own stuff, she's quite powerful. But when she's with Prince Charles, she not pathetic, not anything like that, but she's he's the man that's going to do the stuff and she's there to support him, rather like Prince Philip has been yes. to the Queen. Yes, and, and of says, course, the reason we're talking about all of this, Angie, just to remind people, is because the Queen wrote that great letter yesterday, uh, which came out over the weekend and uh, was really a great symbol of how brilliant she has been all through uh, her reign of decades and decades and decades and, and how selfless and how um, just brilliant uh, she's been as a sovereign. Yes, she has. I think she is remains extremely popular with the public. People today have been talking to me that, oh, Camilla's not, nobody's popular, She don't, people don't like her and all that. But I mean, they love the Queen. I disagree about that with Camilla, but they love the Queen. And if the Queen really asks for something, and interestingly does this on the first day of her Platinum Jubilee year, it's of supreme importance to do that. It wasn't about her again. It was about what she wanted to see the line continue. And she wants Camilla to be queen. And she's asked for the public to, what she said, uh, to steadfast support them mm. uh, throughout. And I think that that will do wonders. And uh, because the queen changed her mind, she didn't like Camilla at one point and she wouldn't go there anywhere where she was. But she now realizes how hard she's worked. Um, all the charities that she now well, is a patron of, and that how much she's helped Prince Charles. He's a transformed man. Mm. You know, they joke, they laugh, he works harder, they work together, they work apart. You know, they are a very good team. And if you see them together, you can see that they're totally at ease with each other. Um, it's not a phony sort of, oh, you go, no, you go. You know, it's actually, they just automatically... Um, make it work mm. for the two of them absolutely it's right touching, i think even after all these years i think it's very touching to see and she will work very hard for this monarchy she understands how ordinary people live she mm. was a single mother for a while she had to take kids to school to her to go shopping in the supermarket she knows what ordinary people are like and she can bring that light into the royal family just as um catherine has done with prince william show them how it is to be ordinary not just stuck in a goldfish bowl 
Yes, absolutely. Finally, um, I saw quite late on yesterday there was no mention of the Queen's Platinum Jubilee from our friends over in Montecito, California, uh, Messrs. Meghan and Harry. Have they said anything yet? Well, um, not as far as I know, and I've been keeping my eye. Must have passed them by, I guess. They could, they could very well have done something very privately, but actually, not like them. Have you gone mad? They don't do anything privately. Well, they they have (laughs) a few Christmas messages privately. My um, understanding, and it is only mine, I haven't got proof, is the Queen has done this now because we dread the memoir of Prince Harry coming later in the year. And I think it will look very different from just attacking Camilla and Prince Charles when they're just, uh, you know, carrying on life in a normal way and actually attacking who is going to be this future queen alongside her king. And I think that's quite a clever thing there. I might be wrong. It might just be coincidence. Mm. But I think it's a way of... Um, putting a strong front forward in a very tactful manner. Yes, interesting times. Angela, thank you very much indeed. The Queen's signalling, of course, that she's going back to work, that she will continue working. Uh, she's not abdicating any time soon, uh, but she is signalling, of course, that when Prince Charles does become king, Camilla will indeed be his queen. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, speaking of people who don't do anything for a living, let's talk about the Church of England. This morning on the front page of the Times, it says that church leaders could be appointed to full-time cabinet-style roles, such as a Brexit bishop 
Oh, a COVID bishop. Apparently, they're a bit worried at the Church of England that they haven't got enough money. There's a reason they haven't got enough money. It's because they pay the people that are bishops far too much. There are people who sit in the House of Lords making laws on our behalf who are bishops. They have no reason to be there. They were not elected to be there. Nobody told them that we wanted them to represent us. It's a harking back to some kind of Tudor age when bishops were important because the Church of England was set up by Henry VIII. Remember that? Well, I've got something for you today, and I think you'll agree wholeheartedly when I say, why don't we just do away with the Church of England? Just abolish it altogether. Peter Hitchens is coming up after the news. I bet he'll have something to say about it, because he believes, like me, that the Church of England has just become a sort of woke version of itself. It's a disaster. The Archbishop of Canterbury talks about how we should be kind to each other, but how we should also save the planet. He talks about climate change. This bloke used to work for BP, by the way. And he sits very nicely in Lambeth Palace, enjoying the fruits of his labours, which don't amount to very much. If I were you, and I was a member of the Church of England, I would just resign and just leave it. Get rid of all the people in it, get rid of all the money that they've got, and distribute it to the poor, because that's what they should be doing, instead of investing it in unethical companies around the world. The Church of England is good for nothing. There is no point to it. It doesn't appear to have any religious um, base whatsoever. In fact, if you believe in God now, it's positively a disadvantage. You'll never get into being a bishop if you believe in God. You can't have that. You have to believe in climate change. You have to believe in wokery. You have to support Black Lives Matter. And of all things, you have to hate the rich. That's the only way to succeed in the Church of England. I say do away with it. Abolish it completely and utterly. There isn't any point to it. What's it for? I think it's a great idea. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let us say a very good morning to, as I... Build him yesterday, the only man who got this right from the beginning, uh, Mr. Peter Hitchens. Very good morning to you, Peter. Morning. Now, well, I, I, uh, unusually, unusually for you, um, having made a statement on a Sunday, you were trending yesterday on Twitter by, by being attacked by those on the left and the right, which is probably a good place for you to be, um, claiming that your suggestion that this would be seen as a golden era of politics uh, was entirely wrong, when in fact they clearly didn't get what you were saying. Well, no, it's amazing. If people don't want to understand something, my <laughs> goodness, they, they won't understand it. All I was saying was that you wait, it'll be so bad after 10 years of Keir Starmer that you'll look back on this as a golden age. I wasn't saying it was nice. No. I was saying terrible as it is, you wait and see what's coming your way. And I, I'm not really saying this. Obviously, I think that the, there's been a lot of foolish hysteria over Johnson uh, by, by people who, who, who ought to have been angry two years ago and was silent and are now angry that they were fooled, right. uh, which is just misplaced and mistimed. And I think it's almost certain that this government is is drawing peacefully to a close. The only question being how long it will take for it to, to, to depart and how long it will take for Johnson to depart. For all I know, he'll stick it out to the next election. But uh, I don't think there's uh, the, many now doubt there's a grave danger that, the, that there will be a possible majority of Starmer's new Labour and Sturgeon's SNP uh, after the next election. This is a distinct possibility. What do people think will happen uh, when the, this takes place? What do they want to happen if they rage and shout against the current government and, and keep on saying, I'll never support it again and all the rest of it? What do they think they'll get? Uh, no one's thinking about this at all. I'll bet you that the strategists of the Labour Party and of the Scottish Nationalists are thinking about it a lot. And what they must see is this, that the, the Scottish Nationalists will demand for, for supporting a, a Labour government in London uh, a, a new referendum on independence, which I have to say I think will succeed. 
And in return, uh, I, I suspect that Starmer, who obviously understands that if Scotland leaves the union, his chances of a majority are gone, will want the electoral reform, which the Blair government tried to achieve and failed to achieve, and, and go for some sort of proportional representation, after which... I promise you there will, there will never be anything even remotely approaching or calling itself a conservative government in this country again. Uh, all countries which adopt proportional representation end up being governed by the left, which, of course, immediately dubs itself the centre uh, forever. So that'll be the end. It'll yes. Be, it, and it's it, interesting. Starmer forever. Yes. Uh, let me, let, me, let me just disagree with a couple of those um, suppositions, shall we say. I mean, I think you're right. There's only one way for Labour to get in, and that is to do a coalition with the SNP. But however, that would then, as you say, mean that they'd more or less defenestrate themselves because they wouldn't be able to stay in if they kicked all the SNP uh, MPs out of the chamber. I'm not sure that there would be a positive vote for, for independence in Scotland anymore. I think talking to a lot of people up there, as I do, and I used to live up there, um, there's a lot less support for Nicola Sturgeon now than there was before the crazy lockdown stuff that she's been doing lately, particularly most recently suggesting that all classroom doors should have the bottom sawn off them in order to keep the uh, the air flowing freely through the school. I mean, you just yeah. cannot make, know, make it know, up. I know, but something... I, the, the last time I went up to Scotland, in fact, during the last referendum, there seems to me to be something abroad, a, a desire of... A, a oh, I think of there was then, but I don't think it's there now. I, I'm not sure it's gone away, and I think you had another referendum campaign, I think it would revive it. Uh, it's only the fact there's no campaign on that it's subsided. And I think one of the, the breaks on that at the, that time during the last referendum was there's still quite a substantial number of old-fashioned, well-educated Scottish people around who were not so keen. Mm. But in the intervening years, a lot of them have, have departed from us. Sure. And we have much younger electorates. And I, I sense that it, that it will happen. But in any case, the, the order in which these things take place is the, is the important thing. Starmer isn't going to let Scotland go until he's until he's got the SNP to back his constitutional reforms, is he? No, so true. we'll get that. We'll get that whatever happens, whether Scotland decides to go or not. We'll get the constitutional reforms and the, the some sort of proportional representation. Probably also the, the abolition of the House of Lords, which it's very hard for anyone to argue against. Yeah. It's such a sink now. Uh, that will probably go and be replaced by some sort of Senate. But what you what will go and what is is the, the form of, of government which people don't realize doesn't really exist anywhere else in Europe uh, that we have of uh, of first past the post uh, elections in which the government can be chucked out and replaced overnight by another that will go forever you won't be able to see the prime minister chucked out on the street with his piano uh, the following morning after an election uh, that it, there will be months of negotiation as there always are in, in, in Germany. Uh, over who will be in power. And those months of negotiation will be principally between uh, parties of the left. Mm. So it will be a, a permanent change to the left, uh, which will never go away. And these are the people, the ones who, who want us to wear face coverings until we die, uh, and the ones who want to keep the country locked down until it expires. And that th these are the same people. They are the, the, they are the ones who will be permanently in yes. charge. That's what you'll get. And after 10 years of that, I promise you, you'll be yearning uh, for the ramshackle, Kate uh, Gates infested days of, of, of Alexander Boris Pfeffel Johnson. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the last time anything like that was tried, it was tried by Nick Clegg with the Lib Dems in a completely un, un, unadulterated mess. 
uh, of confusion when they yeah. tried to have a referendum on something called the AV voting system, which basically nobody understood, nobody could explain it. And surprise, surprise, it was never voted upon. So would there not have to be constitutionally another referendum for that? I don't know. I, I, there's, there's nothing, we have no, there is no constitutional requirement for referendums. Uh, in fact, they, the experience of the last one should have convinced most sensible people <laughs> a disastrous way to carry on because you, you have then two conflicting electoral mandates, one parliament and one referendum. Right. And if they don't agree, then where do you go? No, I think you just, if, if you've got a big enough majority, you put a bill through. Mm. But isn't it funny, though? I mean, talking. Stop it. But isn't it funny, though? We talk about you talk about looking back on something as a golden age. I mean, it it seems an age ago now, a kind of a complete sort of different era when we were sitting every day uh, in a tent on um, College Green, waiting for something to happen inside the chamber, which would mean we could either move further away from Brexit or further towards it. And, you know, we're now in a completely different era. Um, and, and like all things in politics, once Boris Johnson moves out, as he inevitably will, whether it's the fault of his wife, whether it's the fault of, of his, um, his aide, Munira Mirza, who was apparently described as his brain, um, you know, we'll forget about it and we'll move on. And I, I, unlike you, think that there is a future with a different Conservative Prime Minister and a big Conservative majority and a proper Conservative uh, government. Okay, I have to tease you here and ask you who this paragon is who you think is going to take over. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a very difficult yeah, question. Yeah, that's the problem, isn't it? Yeah, but, well, but I mean, it? I'm actually, you know how Tom, some people Tom say... Tom are we going for here? Well, actually, I, I'd quite like to see somebody like Steve Baker in charge because he's not cut from the same cloth as everybody else. And I know that you'll probably say, yeah, but he doesn't have the experience. Well, I don't particularly want Rishi Sunak. I don't particularly want Liz Truss. I don't particularly want Michael Gove or anybody in the cabinet. I'd, no. quite, like to see, I'd quite like to see them all swept away. Well, did you see, uh, and Michael Gove, did you see uh, Dominic Dawson in the Sunday Times yesterday finally cottoning on to the point I've been making for years, which is Michael Gove is the new Blair. Yes. It, the party he ought to be leading is the Labour Party. <laughs> well, uh, it, you're it, absolutely it, right. He is one of them, and he's, he's been open about it. He used to publish articles in the Times saying he was in love with Blair. Yeah. Uh, finally, people are, are, are gathering. Michael Gove is not a right-wing politician. He's, no. he's actually a, a, a part of the, of the new Labour movement who happens to have wandered my mistake into the yes. Conservative Party. Well, it's quite clear now that in order to be often, successful... So often, people just seem to blunder through yeah. the wrong entrance. Well, this is it. I mean, because it's so easy to confuse the entrances and the signs are the same. The point is this, though, that it's not really now fashionable to be a conviction politician. It's not really fashionable to, have, to believe in anything because you get told, well, you can't really do that. Don't do that. Um, just do nothing. Because we're now in a yeah. period, it seems to me we are now you, do nothing. You've quietly slipped aside. I mean, you don't really think Steve Baker's going to be next leader of the Conservative oh, Party, no. do you? No, but you, you asked me, you, you asked me, no, but you asked me, of, I mean, even he, yeah, doesn't, no. even he doesn't think he's going to be the next leader. Be realistic. Of those who think, of those who might conceivably become leader of the Conservative Party, be realistic. Which one of those is going to achieve the, the fantastic transformation that you that you hope for? Well, um, Silas falls, Mike. There's nobody there. There isn't. No, you're right. There absolutely yeah. isn't anyone. Although I quite like the look of Penny Morden. Actually, she looks like somebody who could become uh, quite good. I mean, right. Who could? I mean, okay. Well, you you didn't look. I, you 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 just look into her political career a bit and see if all right well let me say this to you then let me say this to you i mean the problem is is people say well there isn't really anybody better well i could <laughs> i could make the same argument by saying there can't be anybody getting any worse in the, well, in the you, but you're not but this doesn't bother me because i keep telling you we're all doomed anyway i'm just <laughs> letting people know uh, the, the, the nature and speed of the doom which they face i i'd say i had a i had a perfectly sound plan 
in 2010. Everybody ignored me. So that's that's your problem. I can sit here and say happily, I told you so, you, you silly fool. I told you what you could have done. You didn't do it. Now you're getting what you deserve. Don't complain to me. But is it now irreparably um, lost? Well, that's the way it looks to me. I'd be happy to be proved wrong if mm. anybody can, but you've just failed to do so. So I, I keep trying. <laughs> but the other thing, Keir Starmer. Everybody I can thinks, only well, work with what I've got, Peter. I know, exactly. So can we all. But then look at Keir Starmer and say, well, how dull he is. And indeed, he is dull. He is dull. Uninspirational uh, in the extreme. But then again, look at his past. He, he was for some time in his 20s. Uh, on the editorial board of an outfit called Socialist Alliance, which was so, it, 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 it's a, it, it followed a, a branch of Trotskyism so obscure that even I wasn't aware of it until recently, called Pabloism. All right. Uh, it fascinates, fascinating political tendency, but he has, what he said in, a, in an interview with the New Statesman a couple of years ago, maybe longer now, is he hasn't really changed his politics since then. He hasn't disavowed and said, oh, that was my, that, that was my, Youth, uh, I was wild in my youth. Mm. Now I've become a conservative. He said, "No, I don't really disagree with anything, anything we said at the time." And most of it, I have to tell you, was sexual politics, which, of course, as we now know, is central to everything that governments do. And also, uh, green, the, the, the green agenda, the, 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 the what has now become net zero, uh, which is basically destroying the economies of the major Western nations, leaving the world free for Chinese governance. I and mean, that's all that. Is what he was wedded to, and when he was editing this not particularly sparkling magazine, issues of which are still available for the interested on the internet. Okay. If you want to look it up. And it's called Pabloism. We'll definitely do that. But Pabloism I mean, is which takes which takes us back inside Downing Street because you wrote also at the weekend about Ms. Mirza, um, who oh, was yeah. so who was so radical that Ken Livingston called her loony lefty. That's right. And, 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 but huh? she, this is this is all part of the conversion. That's why I kept telling people. That Boris Johnson was a left winger. When he decided to, to campaign for the to be mayor of London, he and Linton Crosby, his election guru, worked out that the thing to do was to be as like Ken Livingston as possible, and so he did. He he, he became a, a left wing person to become to become mayor of a very left wing city, and uh, which it is. He couldn't have done it any other way. Right. And one of the people who helped him do it was Minira Mirza, who was who I I've never actually been able to establish that she was a member of the Revolutionary Communist Party. A number of people write this. I tried quite hard to discover, but she's certainly very closely associated uh, with that curious tendency, uh, which is also re represented by uh, by quite a few other people, all the spiked online crowd. Uh, and, uh, and, the, and the BBC Radio 4 programme, Moral Maze, mm. seems to have a constitutional rule that it cannot have an episode without somebody from, from uh, spiked online being on it, either on the panel or as a witness. But it, it's it, it's a very influential body, way beyond its quite small size. Mm. Uh, I first encountered it as a, as a group called Living Marxism, which then thought that was a bit uh, that was a bit obvious. So it rechristened itself LM, and then there was all that trouble they had with, um, with, with, with with some claims they made about Yugoslavia, and they they dissolved themselves. Uh. But very interesting tendency centering around the Professor Frank Theredian. A sociology professor at the University of Kent, and it's how should I say it's uh, it's the essence of Trotskyism, yeah. and there she and there she is in in Downing Street, isn't it? and everyone's saying, "Gosh, what a tragedy!" Yeah, but the Tory government has, has lost this brilliant person. I don't was, actually it, brilliant. Please tell me, so. please tell me that politics wasn't always like this, though. I mean, I seem I seem ah. to believe that before, and I could be wrong about this, but before Blair. There wasn't this kind of panoply of, of special advisers and you know hundreds of people. When when they told me the size of the prime minister's uh, actual department, 
which apparently has thousands of people working in it. You think, what the hell are they all doing? And they've all come from these rather obscure sects yeah. and strange political parties and strange kind of, you know, clubs at university, haven't they? But mainly it's, it's now a career. It's like going into the city. People decide at Oxford they're going to become special advisors and then they become special advisors and then they're selected for safe seats and then they become ministers. The next thing you know, they're in Downing Street having yeah. parties. Uh, but th this began in the late Wilson years. There was a sort of theory that the civil service was not uh, would isolate uh, radical and, uh, and adventurous ministers by surrounding them with, with stuffy advisors and they should be given more politicised special advisors to help them formulate policies of the kind they wanted to do. This began in the Wilson years, it expanded a bit in the Thatcher years. Uh, and, and then when the Blair people came along, it, it, it exploded. And the Tories have adopted the same thing. Yeah. And, but you, I remember once having a, a, a lunch, a mail on Sunday lunch at one of the party, three of the party conferences in succession with a load of, uh, of supposedly uh, starring spads. And the thing about it, if you, if, if you hadn't known which party conference you were at, you couldn't have told them apart. They, they, I mean, it's usually just the clothing. People have roughly it? the same opinions. They're also vaguely left-wing uh, on practically everything, and that, and the, but also fantastically ambitious it's mm. because it's a, it's a job, and, and the rewards in, in politics these days are very considerable. Because not not just by rising to the to the considerable salaries of senior ministers, but after you left your job as a minister, huge numbers of things open up to you. If you're prime minister, you're pretty certain to become a, a millionaire quite mm. quickly, and others don't do so badly either. Right. It's a, it is a career like going into the city, and people now follow it, and yeah. most of them are on the left. And that, and that, I think, has got to be uh, one of the reasons why it's so awful, why it's so out of touch, and why it doesn't appear to represent, really, uh, the ordinary people of this country. I mean, I know some people who have worked in Downing Street over the last few years, and quite frankly, I wouldn't trust them to go down to the shops and bring back the groceries because they're so out of touch, they wouldn't have a clue where to find them, wouldn't have a clue how much they would cost, and wouldn't know even where the shop was. No, well, but this is, this is a huge problem with the kind of education system we've chosen to have, mm. in which we, it, it's, the main objective of, of all school education is to get people to university. Uh, they're not really taught, as they constantly complain, how to think, they're taught what to think, how to fit in, how to, how to tick whatever boxes are necessary. Uh, and at the end of it, they're, they are, they're trained in conforming uh, to a certain set of ideas mm. which are almost universally held. And if, as I find out to, to my cost every few days, if you, if you publicly disagree with that set of ideas, uh, they have great barrels of green slime which they can help yes. you with. Yes. Uh, but that, but it's, but it's, it's one a, of the worst things about it. Is you're still here, though. You're still they're, here. They're conformists. The point is they haven't managed to silence you completely. I mean, these are people who think you go to Tesco's with a suitcase. I mean, that's the level of uh, their intellectual <laughs> ability, you know. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the masks, talking about uh, conformity yeah. and talking about... You retweeted a very interesting uh, piece about whether or not there was ever any point in wearing them. Tell us about that. Well, it's, it's, in, it's, it's, it's on the Unheard website, which is a, a, an excellent website, which I occasionally write, mm. um, declaring an, an interest, uh, not very often, but a bit. And it often has original stuff on it. In this particular piece, I, not having in front of me, I can't quote directly, but what it basically shows is that if anybody had sat down and looked uh, at those jurisdictions where masking was being enforced and compared them where it wasn't, that the, somebody has done this and there just isn't any real evidence that they're particularly effective. Now, I've known this for a long time because of the, the, the Dan mask, the Danish mask study, uh, the most extraordinary thing, a, a very contentious issue right in the middle of the whole lockdown period. There's a study made on it, which is then not published for quite a while. And when it is published, it's plainly been 
quite seriously uh, rewritten before being published. And then nobody uh, in any major uh, media in this country, apart from me, actually reports the results, mm. which is that there isn't really any evidence that, that, uh, that loose cloth masks are any use. So what has emerged from all this is that the, the N95 masks, the expensive ones which fit tightly to the face and which you have to wear with some considerable care, they are quite effective. But the, the, the normal cloth masks, which most people go out, go out and about in, really don't make very much difference no. at all. Uh, and but so why are so many people still wearing them, you think? I think they, for the reasons I've often stated, they a lot of people are afraid and do believe this, and the, and the, the truth about them has not been properly broadcast or, or published in, 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 in anything like as widely as it should have been, so they don't, they don't know that the evidence for their usefulness is so weak. Uh, and then the other thing is, of course, it's a badge of... Uh, of Virtue. Of, uns- ...of unselfishness. Yes. People think, they've been told by the government repeatedly, you're, you're wearing the masks to keep other people safe, not to keep yourself safe. If they if they'd made it a campaign to keep yourself safe, I think more people would have abandoned them. But as long as you're being told, as long as you wear this, you're helping to protect others, then many people see it as a, as a mark of civilization and of goodness that they continue to wear them. And I'm sure that's what they feel. That's one of the reasons why when I see people doing this, I... I inwardly think, oh, for heaven's sake, but outwardly, I, I, I think the only thing to do is be polite to them. Yeah. They think they're doing something good. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I just kind of, you know, don't just ignore them, really. I mean, it seems a ludicrous thing to do. One final question for you. Um, the Bishop of Brexit, the piece in The Times today, I, I don't expect you to join my campaign because I know it's not your thing. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm now going to actively campaign for the dissolution of the Church of England because I think it now has absolutely no point to it whatsoever. Well, how can you tell? <laughs> most it has no impact on the lives of most people. No. I mean, I try to, I, as far as I can tell, the Church of England is the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, and the authorised version of the Bible, and uh, an even song. And as long as those continue, uh, then it's a valuable part of our uh, both of our society and our culture. And I defend those, but the rest of it, quite frankly, you can keep. Uh, the, the difficulty with the Church of England is that large parts of it don't really believe in the things that it was established to to, to, to propagate. But I don't think you, even if you feel as you do, I, I think you would actually miss it if it's gone. There's one other thing about it which I will defend, uh, and it, you you encounter this if you go to church or have much to do with the church. Quite a lot of young men and women go out, often with the, their families, to live in those parts of the country where basically the police don't go, the social workers don't go, nobody much goes, to try and do some good. And that, in every parish in England, is something the Church of England does, and nobody else will do it if it's gone. And it would be a loss if it stopped. Yes, They're often very brave, and they're very dedicated, and they, sh- they should get uh, a bit more a, a, a bit more encouragement for what they do, instead of the church spending all its money on bishops. It's like the Navy, the church. Yeah. It's got more bishops than it has cathedrals. This is the Navy has more admirals than it has ships. Yeah. It's always a bad plan. It's always a bad idea to move away from what your core business is, I think. It's probably the I think so, but they do do it. And, uh, and it's, it seems to be unstoppable. If you, if, you, if, you, if you play any part in the Church of England or attempt to... I mean, I've given up. Church politics is, is, is a dismal business. But it, it just seems to be set in, in its upper levels 
uh, on, on its own self-destruction. But that doesn't undo the, the profound good that, that quite a lot of the people at the bottom of the mm. organization. And but this is the case with so many organizations. It's the people that are actually doing the work at the bottom who are, who are worth preserving. Mm. The, well, top, the top levels, it's easy to see that you don't really want um, to, to bother to pay for them anymore. Yeah, no, quite. Peter, thanks very much indeed. As ever, Peter Hitchens there making an awful lot of sense about a great many things uh, and, of course, telling us all uh, that he's not at all surprised by what is going on uh, from the Church of England uh, to the government uh, to the Labour Party and indeed to the Conservative Party as well. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Also, of course, we will be bringing you all kinds of other breaking news as it happens throughout the course of the day. Ben and Jerry's have decided to intervene in the um, so-called war between Russia and uh, Ukraine. Thanks. I don't think that's really necessary. Let's talk now to Mike Sullivan, crime editor at The Sun. Mike, very good afternoon. Welcome. Yeah, good morning. Uh, good afternoon, Mike. Thanks very much indeed. I mean, like me, I mean, you may have known a bit more about this than I did, but I was pretty shocked to read this development over the course of the weekend that uh, the, 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 the man uh, who is currently in jail for the murder of Millie Dowler uh, confessed to killing Lynn and Megan Russell. Extraordinary. Uh, yeah, it is extraordinary. Um, <clears throat> Belfield has made a previous confession to this, uh, the murders of uh, Lynn and Megan and the attempted murder of Josie. Mm. Um, he told a prisoner uh, a year or two back that um, he did it uh, and he later retracted the confession. So um, it does need to be taken with a, a sort of a, a degree of scepticism, unfortunately, because Belfield is a publicity seeker. Mm. Um he still wants attention. Uh, he revels in his notoriety. Um, however, um, this confession uh, on four pages um, uh, made to Michael Stone's solicitor has given um, Stone and his supporters um, great, well, it's greatly encouraged mm. them. Um, the, the, the Commission for uh, Criminal Case Re- Review, Criminal Case Review Commission, are currently looking at the the, um, the whole case and. Um, no doubt they will take this confession, uh, look at it and um, see whether there's anything that they can do to act on it. Right. I mean, I'm told and I'm not an expert on the, on the cases at all, but I'm told that, that he gives some information that he could only know if he was at the scene at the time. Um, does this confession differ in any way from the last one? Then I, I, I'm not sure that that's correct. I mean, what he's done is he's added in bits and pieces so he says he's wearing i mean i think we probably take your uh, listeners back or viewers these days um back to um 1996 and mm. the, the crime itself uh, because it was one of those shocking crimes which um which have undermined the whole country's um sense of security really um a mother and two children walking in a beautiful area of kent uh, back from school the girls have been at a swimming gala that day uh, they were battered um, with a hammer um, by an attacker. Um, Lynn, the mother, Megan, who was six, died, and Josie was left with appalling head injuries. Um, so it really did touch the sort of nation's consciousness. And then flash forward a year later, uh, there was a Crime Watch appeal, and Michael Stone was arrested. He's always denied it, but there was a controversial jail confession uh, where he's alleged to have told uh, a man named Damien Daly that he carried out uh, these murders, Mm. providing information. This confession has always been shrouded in doubts. uh, And in fact, Daly uh, was subsequently convicted himself for murder. Um, Now, 
Stone had a retrial uh, three years after his conviction, and that was back in 2001, the retrial, and he was convicted again and on the say-so of Daly's evidence, and that was all there was. Um, however, um, moving forward, there haven't been any great forensic opportunities in this case. There is a bootlace uh, which was missing for 14 years, which the police discovered last year, and that's currently being tested. Uh, and that, in some ways, is probably more hopeful for Stone's case than Belfield's confession. Yes. I mean, if it does turn out that his confession is accurate and that Stone isn't guilty, that's going to be another hammer in the in the sort of the coffin of uh, of the police, isn't it? Because well, people well, are accused of getting it so wrong. Yeah, it would be, and also for the CPS, um, that the evidence was always. I mean, it was always fairly um, weak. There was uh, some total of parts. Um, different jail confessions. There was one prisoner who retracted his um, evidence to a court about the confession. Um, I mean, personally, I, I think where you've got jail confessions, it's not enough by themselves. There has to be something else mm. uh, to establish a, a person's guilt beyond reasonable doubt. Um, Stone, meanwhile, has done 25 years because he's not accepting his guilt. Um, he's refusing to engage with uh, probation workers, so he's got no chance of getting out unless his um, unless his his name is cleared. Mm. It's an extraordinary story, isn't it? I mean, I remember it at the time as well, back in '96. I think I was working on the Express then, um, and it was so yeah. shocking um, and, and awful, and and seemingly kind of just you know pointless. You could, nobody had really any motive, and it was horrifying to think that there was a man out there willing to yeah. commit this kind of murder on people he didn't even know. Well, that, 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 that's right. And obviously the thing about Belfield is uh, there are uh, some circumstantial evidence against him in relation to the Russell murders. Mm. I mean, firstly, he's used a hammer uh, to kill two young women, and that was Amelie Delagrange and um, Marsha McDonnell. <clears throat> uh, he murdered Lip, uh, Millie, although it doesn't appear that he used a hammer in that situation, and it was more likely she was strangled or mm. suffocated. Right. Um, he was, he had links to the area in Kent, and it is a, a, a very rural, remote area. That was a beautiful part of the country. Um, and he was also driving a Fortiera, he says, but um, one of his partners said it was a, a beige-coloured car he was driving at the time of the um, Russell attack, the Gillenden murders, have they become known. Um, there was a, a beige Ford that was seen in the area by witnesses that day. Mm. And in fact, it arguably, um, Belfield resembles, there was a, a, a photo fit of a man, chubby-faced chap in fair hair in a red T-shirt, uh, which was provided at the time. And definitely, arguably, Belfield resembles that photo fit more closely than Stone did at the time. Right. And I mean, knowing these characters as you do, having studied them and written about them for so many years, I mean, what is it that would drive somebody like Belfield to be in the public eye? Why, why would he do this? Uh, well, he's got nothing else, really. I mean, he's doing a whole life tariff for uh, the three murders he's been convicted of. Um, he probably would like to wind up the police. He made false... Um, he concocted a false confession to having denied Millie's murder. He provided details a few years back, uh, which the police checked out, details on Millie's murder and other um, crimes around the country, which were never made public at the time. Um those those um, confessions were were never sort of 
corroborated mm. and they never went anywhere. So um, in this instance, uh, he's saying, yes, it was me. I was there that day. I had a pair of yellow marigold gloves. Um, I went to attack Lynn um, with the hammer, uh, decided that the children would start screaming. So I attacked them. Then the dog bit me. This is the family pet terrier, Lucy. And um, uh, he, he, he slaughtered the dog. Um, then he says he drove away from the scene, stopped at Clackett Services on the M25, yeah. washed, washed the blood off himself and went, went back home. Um, I mean, it's, you know, why would you do something? It's a very good question, yeah. but um, only um, only someone as um, twisted as uh, Belfield, mm. if he has made this confession up, could, could answer that. I or mean, would, you, would there the not truth. have been, even back in 96, would there not have been CCTV at Clackett Lane service station? Somewhere? Not in the... No, well, precisely, but you wouldn't get it now. Mm. But um, there was there was CCTV. Um, in fact, Sean Russell, who the father of... Um, Josie and Megan and Lynn's husband, um, he was given a cast iron alibi um, on the for the day of the murders itself because he was seen on Canterbury High Street on three different cameras. Mm. Now, I bet, you know, flash forward 25 years, 26 years, whatever it is, uh, how many cameras would you be seen on Canterbury High Street now? Probably 20 yeah. or, or more. I mean, there's much more of a proliferation of CCTV. Right. Um, at the time, I don't, yeah, I there's no hope of retrieving that footage now, quite clearly. No. Uh, what it relies on here for um, uh, 100%, um, if you like, verdict or 100% guilt on, on somebody or proving it one way or another is, is uh, forensic evidence. Mm. And there is still this hope with a bootlace, um, which tests are still being carried out on. Um uh, that being said, you know, we do have a, a legal system where you have to prove something beyond reasonable doubt. Yes. And um, I think many people would say that the case has not really been proved beyond reasonable doubt in Michael Stone. It was a, two juries found him guilty. Whether they would find him guilty today perhaps is another matter. Mm, interesting. Just uh, Let me just change uh, tack slightly, Mike, to ask you about Cressida Dick. Another story at the weekend of oh, yeah. police malfeasance, at the very least. Uh, Des O'Connor's daughter complaining that uh, after being attacked in Camden, she got in yeah. touch with a police officer who, who's, who later rose to a very high level, um, who started chatting her up and asking her out. Yeah. Um, I mean, he was. Um, the, the case was proved against him at a disciplinary. He kept his job... Um, it was yeah, it's unfortunate reading, and uh, I'm sure Cressida Dick will be um, fairly appalled at the idea of her officers um, calling, referring to um, Des O'Connor's daughter. I've forgotten her first name now, actually, but as uh, Christina was it? And asked, yeah, Christina asking her out for drinks, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, calling her hot. It, it's it's not very. It's not really. It's what not you, very it's not really what you want, is it? Not really what you want, and the Metropolitan Police have got this um, unfortunate thing hanging over them from the um, Wayne Cousins case, yeah. the murder of Sarah Everard, uh, where questions are being asked about police and their attitudes to women. Yes, uh, but I mean, one, she's now proving helped. herself to be as hard to remove as Boris Johnson, if not harder. Well, yeah, I mean, she's got two years, um, uh, an extension there, two years from uh, the Home Secretary, Um uh, the Home Secretary has decided she's the right person to carry out the job and arguably, um, being a woman, 
the first female commissioner, uh, you would imagine she would be the right person to drive through the changes that uh, are seemingly needed uh, in, in attitudes anyway amongst a minority, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah, you would think you would think she would, but it doesn't seem to be working too well for her. Mike, appreciate your time. Thank you very much indeed. Mike Sullivan, their crime editor at The Sun, uh, with this extraordinary story about Levi Belfield claiming uh, that he also murdered um, the Russell family, um, three members of it. It's really quite ridiculous how it would be if it turns out that Michael Stone, who's been convicted twice now by two juries, uh, would turn out to be innocent. But we don't yet know the answer to that. Uh, we'll take your calls on many, many more things, including the idea that Carrie Johnson uh, is the power behind the throne. How about this from Chris in Newbury? Let's say Carrie stays totally out of government policy. That just means Boris is 100% responsible for these car crash green and woke policies. Surely he has to go even sooner. He can be protected from Carrie interfering. But if these were all his ideas, there is no hope. Well, that's for, for sure. This is what I keep saying to people who want to defend him. You know, there is nothing that he's doing which is remotely conservative in nature. There is nothing that he is doing that is making your life better. Is there? Tell me if there is, because I'm searching for it. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Across the UK. Online. On DAB. And on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.